0: this final Sunday service of the year. We're continuing in our series in Luke's Gospel and this evening we come to Luke chapter 16 uh, and verses 19 to 31 and uh, if you want to open up your Bibles and turn to Luke 16, that would be good. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1050. 1050. Now, uh, just a Few words of introduction or or recap, rather. Uh, Back on 2nd of December, which seems like a long time ago now, uh, many, many mince pies ago, um, back on 2nd of December, I preached on Luke 16, verses 1 to 18, under the title Money, Religion, Sex. And that passage included a positive example of the use of possessions the parable of the shrewd manager. And this manager in the parable was both prudent and generous with his financial resources, but all for his own ends. And the main point of the parable was that if someone like that selfish manager can be so prudent and forward-thinking, how much more prudent and forward-thinking should be Jesus' followers who have eternity in their sights? Well, in tonight's passage, Jesus stays on the topic of money and possessions, but this time we get a negative example rather than a positive example. Uh, The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So then, Luke uh, chapter 16, reading from verse 19. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes back to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Well, this is God's Word. Let's just take a moment of prayer before we get into it. Father, this is indeed your Word, and it comes to us from the lips of your own Son. Uh, Help me to explain it clearly and faithfully. Help us to hear it, understand it, and respond to it appropriately and joyfully. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've kept up with the news at all over this last month, you'll almost certainly recognise the couple in the photograph on the screen. Uh, Their names, in case you missed it, are John and Anne Darwin. Now, on 21st of March, 2002, Mr. Darwin paddled out to sea in a canoe and brought about a significant reversal of fortune for his wife when the wreckage of his canoe washed up on the shore a few uh, weeks later and he was presumed dead. He and his wife, turns out, were tens of thousands of pounds in debt, but uh, after his disappearance, his wife was able to claim on his life insurance policies to the tune of around £150,000. That's quite a reversal of fortune, as far as bank balances go. Well, over five years later, on the 1st of December this year, just four weeks ago, John Darwin walked into a police station in London claiming amnesia and thereby brought about several more significant reversals of fortune. Before long, he was arrested and charged with fraud, as was his wife. The full extent of their deception was swiftly exposed and uh, Mrs. Darwin's plans to move to Panama to be with her late husband collapsed around her head. Perhaps the most uh, tragic reversal of fortune in the whole story uh, was experienced by their two sons. Before their father's reappearance, they believed he was long dead. Afterwards, they knew he was still alive, but wanted nothing more to do with him. In effect, their father had moved from death to life to death again. Well, the most gripping stories, whether they are uh, factual or fictitious, always involve, it seems, some reversal of fortune. And the short story that's uh, told by Jesus in this parable is no exception. In fact, it involves three very dramatic reversals of fortune. And all I want to do this evening is to look at each one of these in turn and draw out the relevance for us as we stand at the brink of a new year. So please keep your Bibles open in front of you as we look at this passage together. Well, the first reversal is the reversal experienced by the rich man, from luxury to agony, from luxury to agony. This man lived the good life. He wore the finest clothes. He enjoyed all the pleasures that his money could buy. Now, in the eyes of the Pharisees, who uh, would certainly have been listening to Jesus as he told this parable, this man's wealth would normally have been taken as a sign of God's blessing. What's more, this rich man died unremarkably and was buried, presumably honorably, and yet he didn't go to heaven. He went to hell. Why? Why did this rich man end up in hell? Well, let's be clear. It wasn't because he was rich. Nowhere does the Bible teach that wealthy people are bound for hell. And in fact... The very presence of Abraham in this parable refutes that idea because if you read the story of Abraham in Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, you discover that Abraham was, in fact, a very wealthy man. Now, the rich man's problem was not that he was rich. His problem was his attitude to his wealth, his use of that wealth, and what it all showed about his relationship with God. And what we find in the story is that this man had two major faults. Two major faults. The first was, he had no compassion. No compassion. He saw this poor man Lazarus on his doorstep every day, but it seems that he did nothing at all to help him in his distress. He could could have used at least some of his great wealth for acts of compassion, but he didn't. And he could hardly have used the excuse that he uh, never noticed Lazarus all that time for not only did Lazarus sit right at his very front gate but we discover later in the parable that the rich man recognises Lazarus and even knows his name. And yet he showed no compassion. I think the application for us is clear enough. By the world's standards uh, most of us here tonight are pretty well off. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The issue is how we use our God-given wealth and what it shows about the attitudes of our hearts. But don't miss the point here. The lesson of the parable is not that we should give money to beggars so that we don't end up in hell. That's not what it's about. In fact, some would argue that just handing cash to people on the street is, is a substitute for compassion rather than an act of compassion. If you really want to make a lasting difference to the lives of the homeless and the destitute, then you'd do better to make a regular monthly donation to a charity like Bethany Christian Trust. Now, the point is this. Our bank statements tell a story about our priorities and our attitudes to those around us. Here's something else for us to think about. As a congregation, you may know, uh, we've just spent... £175,000 to buy a ground floor space in the building out there across the lane. And it hasn't uh, yet been decided exactly how we're going to use that property. It's a lot of potential. But the question I want to ask is, will we end up using it to serve ourselves or to serve those in our city who have great needs? How are we going to use it? Now, of course, our first priority must be to meet people's spiritual needs, to proclaim the gospel of salvation through Jesus. No question about that. That's our priority. But Jesus knew nothing about a gospel that met people's spiritual needs while ignoring their material needs. Like many of you, uh, I've been avidly reading through Revival in Rose Street, uh, the account of the 200-year History of Charlotte Chapel, of this church, written by our former church secretary, uh, Ian Balfour. Absolutely fascinating read, uh, thoroughly recommend it to you, still available at the bookstore in West Owen for £10, bargain price. But I found the early chapters of this book uh, absolutely fascinating in particular, about how the church was started and the man who started it. Two things struck me in particular about Christopher Anderson, the man who founded the church 200 years ago. The first was his great passion for evangelism, his deep concern to, to uh, reach those who are spiritually, spiritually lost. But the second was his particular concern for the poor in Edinburgh in his day. People uh, who at that time lived in such poverty that they struggled just to survive from one day to the next. And one of the reasons that Charlotte, uh, that um, Christopher Anderson started Charlotte Chapel is because he saw no other church in Edinburgh that wanted to reach out to the poorest and the least educated people of his day. He saw no other church that was willing to make them feel welcome. And as a matter of fact, Christopher Anderson himself was a wealthy man. He inherited great wealth. But he used it to reach out to the neediest people in society. I think he set us a great example. And I wonder, are we living up to our heritage as we enter our 200th anniversary year? Well, this rich man showed no compassion. But that wasn't his only fault. He also showed no repentance. No repentance. He knew that there was a God who would one day pass judgment on how he'd lived his life. If nothing else, his his conscience should have told him that he wasn't living in a God-honoring way and that he did not deserve to spend eternity in the presence of God. And yet he did nothing about it. He continued to live for himself rather than for God and for others. And he realized this mistake, but only after it was too late for him. All he could do was plead with Abraham to send someone to warn his family so that they would not make the same mistake. Verse 30. He says, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Note that. Repent. He knew that he should have repented. He knew that his brothers needed to repent. And the same is true for every single person on this planet. You see, the need for people to repent, to uh, turn away from our own self-serving ways and turn back to God... That was at the very heart of Jesus' message. I'm not going to repeat all that I said when I preached on chapter 13 of Luke's Gospel back in October, but here in this parable we find the same urgent warning of Jesus repent, turn back to God. So the rich man showed no compassion and no repentance, and as a result he met a tragic and terrifying fate he found himself in hell. Now, we have to be very careful about what conclusions we draw from the parable on this point. This is, after all, a parable. Uh, It isn't intended to be as a literal representation of reality. It does have some figurative elements. That's fairly obvious. And we also need to bear in mind that Jesus' purpose here isn't to give a theological lecture on the afterlife. No, he's teaching about how people in the kingdom of God ought to use their possessions. That is the context here. We must keep that in mind. But even so, there are certain elements of this parable that have to be taken seriously. Otherwise, the point Jesus is making loses all force. Just take an extreme example. If there is, in fact, no such place as hell at all, if it's just a fictional idea, then the parable is completely pointless. It doesn't work at all. So, as we move from thinking about the rich man's faults to the rich man's fate, there are two important points we need to recognize. First, in hell, there is no relief. No relief. Verse 23 tells us that the rich man was in torment. And he calls out to Abraham, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Hell is an agonizing experience for this man. Some theologians have argued that hell involves literal fire. I'm not so sure about that, uh, because one of the characteristics of fire is that it burns things up. It consumes them. Certainly, this rich man isn't being destroyed. He continues to exist on and on and on, but this continued existence is now one that's marked by great pain and distress. And if anything, the pain is worse than that of literal fire because it isn't mere physical pain. It's the worst form of psychological and spiritual pain. It's the pain of absolute loss and unrelenting despair. And one of the worst aspects of it is that there is no relief. Verse 25, Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things... While Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. The rich man had made his bed by the foolish and selfish choices that he made in life, and now he has to lie in it. So hell is a place of no relief. But not only that, it is a place of no release. No release. Look at verse 26. Abraham continues, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. You know, I've spoken to people, and I'm sure you have too, who have a philosophy of life that goes like this. I don't know whether there's a God, or a heaven, or a hell, but life's just too short to spend time worrying about it. I'm going to enjoy myself as best I can and uh, when I die and it turns out, if it turns out that there is a God and a heaven and a hell, then I'll just make whatever apologies need to be made and it will all turn out okay in the end. It'll it'll never be too late to get right with God. You know people who think like that? That's probably, I think, the worst mistake that someone could make in this life. Imagine someone saying, I'm not going to buy car insurance now because I might never crash. I can always get the insurance once I actually have an accident. If I have an accident, then I'll get the insurance. Well, that would be absolutely ridiculous. And yet millions of people apply the very same of, sort of thinking to the biggest questions in life and death. As we'll see in a moment or two, we have all the information that we need now to prepare for our eternal destiny. We can know whether there is a God and a heaven and a hell right now. But Jesus is clear and so is the rest of the Bible that your eternal destiny is determined before the end of this life and not after. The book of Hebrews puts it very clearly. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. In this life there are always second chances. In hell there are none. It's too late. There's no relief and there's no release. The reason for that is that God's judgment simply cannot be put off indefinitely. And hell is the final expression of God's judgment for those who in this life show no compassion and no repentance. There's a bridge to heaven from this life. And there's a bridge to hell from this life. But there's no bridge between heaven and hell. Well, it's a sobering picture and a terrifying reversal of fortune. But let's move now from a negative reversal to a positive one. The rich man moved from luxury to agony Lazarus, however, moves from distress to comfort. From distress to comfort. At the start of the story, we find that Lazarus is destitute. His life is literally in the gutter. He's uh, probably crippled, that's why he's lying there. He has no home, he has no food, he has nothing in material terms. He's covered with painful sores, which are licked by dogs. And we're not talking about nice friendly, well-groomed puppies here. Uh, These would have been wild dogs carrying fleas and disease. And to add insult to injury, Lazarus has to watch this rich man walk past him every day with his fine clothes and his fat belly and all the rest of it. Lazarus begs for food and the best that he gets are the thrown out scraps. But this poor beggar experiences a wonderful reversal of fortune. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. For the Jews, the people that Jesus was speaking to, Abraham was the paradigm example of a faithful man of God. If anyone gets to heaven, Abraham gets to heaven. And so the expression Abraham's side clearly refers here to heaven to the presence of God with all the comfort and the joy and the delight that follow from it. And so for Lazarus a temporary life of hell was followed by an eternal life in heaven. Now a moment ago we asked why did the rich man end up in hell? So let's ask the next logical question why did Lazarus end up in heaven? Think about that for a moment. What would your answer be? Well, let's rule out some wrong answers. Lazarus wasn't saved by his poverty. The Bible never treats poverty as something that's inherently virtuous, and it certainly never implies that poor people are saved because of their poverty. It's true that uh, God has particular compassion for the poor and the sick, and so therefore should God's people. And the parable encourages us to do so. That's part of the point of it. But the Bible does not endorse the simplistic equation of the poor with the saved and the rich with the damned. For one thing, as we've already seen, Abraham was not a poor man. So Lazarus wasn't saved by his poverty, and neither was he saved by his goodness. Nothing is said in this story about whether Lazarus was a good person or not. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. There's certainly no implication in the story that he earned a place in heaven through good deeds. Because we're only told that he lay in the street and he begged just to keep himself alive. And in any case, the idea that people gain eternal life by their own goodness is contradicted by the whole thrust of the Bible's teaching from start to finish. In fact, we'll see some specific examples of this when we come to Luke chapter Uh, 18 and 19. We'll look at these in the new year. So if Lazarus wasn't saved by his poverty and he wasn't saved by his goodness, how was he saved? Well, reading between the lines, the answer is this. He was saved by God's grace and his faith. By God's grace and his faith. You see, if he wasn't saved because of anything virtuous in himself, whether his poverty or his goodness, then he must have been saved only by God's grace. After all, that is the consistent teaching of Jesus and the New Testament. We can't can't earn heaven. We can't earn eternal life. It is the free gift of God for whoever is willing to receive it. And in fact, there are several hints of this in the story. Uh, Just look, in, in the first place, Lazarus is carried to heaven by angels. The image of being carried suggests that someone else is doing the work, not him. And did you wonder at all why Jesus gave a name to the beggar but not to the rich man? Did you wonder about that? Well, the name Lazarus literally means helped by God. Helped by God. Lazarus didn't get to heaven under his own steam. He was carried there by God's mercy. But just because we are saved by God's grace, it doesn't mean that nothing is required of us. God does require something. Faith. Faith. As I said earlier, Lazarus' role in this story is really pretty minimal. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He just stays in the background. And so, We're given a picture of someone who is utterly dependent on God. He can't do anything to save himself. He has to totally depend on God. And that is almost a definition of saving faith. Utter dependence on God. That's faith. Faith is the empty hand that receives God's gift of eternal life through Jesus. Faith says... I can't help myself. I can't save myself. I need to be Lazarus, helped by God. Well, we could draw a number of lessons from the story of Lazarus this evening, but here's the one that I just want to press home. Lazarus' story shows us that there is hope for anyone. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're morally upright or not, whether you're fit as a fiddle, or confined to bed. There is hope for anyone because the joy of eternal life becomes by God's grace and is received through faith. That's the theme of this whole series that we've been going through the whole year in Luke's Gospel. Good news of great joy for all people, for anyone. But perhaps we can go even further. There is hope especially For those who, like Lazarus, experience great distress in this life, the very same reversal of fortune can be experienced by anyone. Let me be as down to earth as I can at this point. I'm sure that many of us had a very enjoyable Christmas. Time off work, time to rest, good food. Perhaps someone gave you a voice command, Dalek don't know what that means, you'll need to listen to the sermon I did on 2nd of December. But I'm equally sure that some of us didn't have a good Christmas, whether because of ill health, or poverty, disappointment, bereavement, whatever. For some of us, I suspect, every card saying, have a Merry Christmas, felt like a poke in the eye. Well, if so, the message of this parable for you is... Hang in there. Hang in there. Depend utterly on God and in time you will experience the same reversal of fortune. The Apostle Paul, one of the first followers of Jesus, was no stranger to distress. He was flogged, he was beaten, betrayed, imprisoned, run out of town and shipwrecked three times. Several attempts were made on his life He had long-standing health problems, so it seems, and he often had to go without food or sleep. And yet, in uh, in spite of the distresses that he experienced, he was able to write these remarkable words. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul had a Lazarus perspective. And I pray that God will give all of us a Lazarus perspective too. Well, we've seen two reversals of fortune now in this passage from luxury to agony, and from distress to comfort. But there's a third reversal from death to life. From death to life. It's too late for this rich man but it's not too late for his brothers, he realises. They're still living. So he asks Abraham to send Lazarus back from the afterlife, back from the dead, as it were, to warn them. But Abraham's reply is blunt and to the point. Verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets let them listen to them the phrase Moses and the prophets refers to the writings of the Old Testament sort of shorthand for that Uh, in other words those books of the Bible that were available in Jesus' day and so Abraham's point is that the rich man's brothers already have the Bible they already have God's word so they should already know what God requires of them they have warning enough But the rich man protests. No, Father Abraham, he says, but if someone from the dead goes back to them, they will repent. Surely, he thinks, surely if they see a great miracle, someone raised from the dead, well, that will bring them to their senses and they'll repent. But Abraham knows better. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus' parable began as a lesson for the wealthy. The way that you live and use your wealth shows the state of your heart before God. But the conclusion of the parable leads us to another lesson about the human heart. Perhaps an even deeper lesson. The rich man apparently thought that God's word wasn't enough. He implied that he hadn't been fairly treated. He thought that there should have been more an amazing miracle of some kind. He needed more and his brothers needed more. But he was mistaken. God's Word is enough. God's Word, the Bible, speaks for itself clearly and comprehensively. It has God's power. It has God's authority. It doesn't need to be propped up by miracles or anything else for that matter. No, the problem is not that God's Word falls short. The problem is that people's hearts are too hard to receive it, unless the Holy Spirit intervenes. And if people's hearts are too hard to receive God's Word in the first place, then adding a dose of miracles to them makes isn't going to make any difference. People will just find some alternative explanation or interpretation for the miracle. Just think, for example, how obvious it seems to you, if you are a Christian, that this world is the product of deliberate and intelligent design. Is it not obvious to you? And yet, atheists still manage to persuade themselves that it is entirely the product of chance and blind, natural processes. The evidence for the design isn't lacking. But the ability to see and accept the evidence is very lacking. So the rich man underestimates the hardness of his own heart and the hearts of others. If people won't hear God's words, they won't see God's works either. And yet, there's a deep irony in the final verse of this passage. It would have been missed completely by the people who first heard the story, but it was intended by Jesus, who knew what was going to take place very shortly. And from our vantage point, some 2,000 years later, the irony, I think, should be obvious. The irony is that the conclusion of the story was followed by a dramatic confirmation in history. Someone did rise from the dead. Not Lazarus, helped by God, but Jesus, the Son of God. It was the ultimate reversal of fortune. From death to life, Jesus was betrayed, arrested, crucified, buried in a tomb, his disciples were scattered and distraught. It looked as though all was lost. The situation was absolutely hopeless. But three days later, to everyone's utter amazement, Jesus rose to life again. He came back from the dead. And his disciples were utterly transformed as they went from city to city, boldly preaching that Jesus Christ, God's Son, had risen from the dead in fulfillment of God's Word through the Old Testament prophets. And that everyone who repents and trusts in him would be saved. And yet, just as Jesus predicted, people still didn't believe. Some did, by God's grace, but most didn't. And it wasn't for lack of evidence, but because of the hardness of their hearts. But the facts are still the facts, whether or not anyone believes them. The evidence is there for those who have eyes to see it and hearts to receive it. Jesus was raised to life again. And he promised that his reversal of fortune would be experienced by everyone who trusts and follows him. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Does that include you tonight? Does that include you? We stand at the brink of a new year. And the arrival of a new year always offers some hope. Perhaps 2008 will be better than 2007. Well, perhaps. But there's something far better than a new year something that offers much more hope and that's a new life a new life a new life in perfect relationship with God for eternity it's the ultimate reversal of fortune and it is the free gift of God to everyone who wants it promised by God's word and accomplished by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's son you received that gift let's pray